you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Romans chapter 3. Continuing our look through the book of Romans, and today we're at a wonderful place. Well, we're almost to a wonderful place. Well, we'll be at a wonderful place by the time we end. Does that make sense? We're right at the end of the bad news section, and we're starting to move towards the good news section. That's what I mean by that. So, We've been enough weeks in the bad news section. But for a little more bad news, while you're there, uh, turning there to Romans 3, I want to begin this morning by reading from Psalm 14. Just listen, the first three verses, because they're repeated in Romans chapter 3. Psalm 14 begins, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And next I'd like to read from Psalm 53, the first three verses, which says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Two Psalms saying exactly the same thing. Uh, And really the world of spiritual understanding begins there. Apprehend the truths of David in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and you are well on the road to wisdom. Miss these truths and and you will languish year after year in a world of thought that never quite coheres, that uh, is confusing, that never satisfies and never brings you to an answer. More importantly, this starting point is really the path to salvation. If you miss this, you miss the opportunity to be reconciled to the living God who made you. It's true. God has looked down, David says, from heaven and has looked among men with a purpose to see if there's anybody who understands what it's all about, who understands him, who understands themselves, who understands what God wants, what God has done, what God expects, all of those things, to see if there's anyone who seeks for God. And what does he find? He searches every nation, he searches every province, he searches every city, he looks into every village, he goes to every hamlet, he enters every home, he goes to every room, he looks in every heart, and he finds no one who seeks after him. He searches every heart and mind to see if there is anyone who really loves him, who is truly good, who loves God with a whole heart. And what does he find? How many wonderful, godly people are there? None. There aren't any. There is no one who does good. So when Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, composed his great letter to the Romans, the great doctrinal book of the New Testament, describing the work of God in the salvation of men, he begins here. The book of Romans is a book about righteousness. When Paul quotes in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3 and and verse 12, when he quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, going from Hebrew to Greek, he deliberately works it so that he translates it using the word righteousness. There is none righteous uh, in verse 10 there. There is none righteous, not even one. Let us remember, if you've been with us through these weeks, we've been going through Romans so far, um, during all the bad news time, 
The book of Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's its theme. Which Paul says is a revelation of the righteousness of God. And it's revealed in men by faith. If you remember chapter 1, verse 16, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, are the, that's the thesis statement for the whole book. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That sentence is, the, is what the whole book is about, and the whole book is an expansion of that sentence. The righteous shall live by faith. The whole epistle is dedicated to explaining how this is so. For notice, what's so interesting about it is there are such people who are righteous. Now, does that seem like that can't be? God looks at men and finds none righteous, but here they are, righteous individuals. The just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Something then, unless Paul's totally confused, and I don't think he is, something then turns wicked men into righteous men. There's something that goes on that makes people righteous. Last week I asked you to imagine what it might be like if God appeared to you and announced that he had examined every human heart on earth and found not one righteous individual. Just read to you basically Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. He just came to you personally and told you, I've searched the whole world and I have found no righteous people anywhere. What would you do? And then God says, therefore under the justice of my own kingdom all are condemned. And I said, if we had the courage to speak to him, and we'd probably be shaking, we might ask this question. I think this is the only question you could ask at that point would be this. Is it possible for a wicked person like myself to become a righteous person? To be right with you? Is there a way to get right with you? Is there a way a condemned sinner can become right with God? And there is. That's the good news. That's gospel. There is a way to go from being a person examined and found unrighteous to becoming one of the righteous who live, who gets to live. That way of transition, that bridge from sin to righteousness is the gospel, the good news. And it's all about a way that God has made to turn sinners into saints. And then finally, after many weeks of seeing the human condition here as we've wrestled through Romans and all of its unrighteousness and ungodliness, now we're starting to approach the solution. The end of the bad news has uh, wonderful news that follows it. And before we get to the best news you've ever heard, let's look really quickly at Paul's Old Testament quotations in Romans chapter 3. He uses portions of Psalm 14, Psalm 53, a um, couple of other psalms he strings together and then he throws in a line from Isaiah chapter 59. That's something rabbinical thinkers do. They just string together truths to make some point, just keep adding to it. It makes a section from verse 10 to verse 18 that is all out of the Old Testament. And together it describes the human condition. He describes humanity in, in three broad terms. The character of man, the speech of man, and the deeds of man, the deeds of mankind. What he is, what he says, and what he does. The overarching idea is found in verse 9, Romans chapter 3. What then? After saying all the stuff he said, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Meaning, are Jews better than Gentiles? Not at all. 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody, by the way, there's nobody that's not a Jew or a Gentile, that everybody, Jew and Gentile, are all, and here's the key expression, under sin. Everybody's under sin. Everyone, and he's been proving that for two chapters now. The word all is really important. All are under sin. Just like verse 12, all have turned aside. Verse 19, all the world is accountable to God. There's nobody that's left out of this. Nobody. Everyone is under sin. Well, what does that mean to be under sin? Well, that's why, how he, why he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He's going to explain what that means. And essentially, he's going to explain how thoroughly corrupted man is, what theologians like to call depravity, and what good Calvinist theologians call total depravity. That sounds really bad, huh? And it is bad, and it's an accurate description of exactly what he's talking about. That is, every aspect of human existence is tainted, twisted, and corrupted by sin and rebellion against God. And as Chesterton, the Catholic writer, said, and I think he's totally right, he said, the doctrine of man's sin is the only, only biblical doctrine that you have everyday verifiable proof constantly uh, throughout your life. And it's true. I mean, you just walk through the world or look in your own head and there you are. That one's true. That doctrine's true. You know, you can argue about Trinity and everything else, but that one we know just by experience, even though people actually want to pretend it's not so, but it is so, isn't it? Just look at your own self. Being under sin means that humanity is under the power of sin. And that means that all men bear the guilt of sin and all men come under the condemnation of God. And again, that goes right back to chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is there. And we said that depravity is outlined in character, speech, and conduct. And he starts in verse 10 with the character of man. As it is written, and we're right back to these same words, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. And as I told you last time, in Hebrew, they don't have the word very. They don't say anything very. Oh, well, people are very bad. They just repeat things over and over again. There is none righteous, not even one. No, not one, not one. Uh-uh, none, any, no. And when you say it like three or four times, you get the idea of the very kind of comes in. You go, okay, okay, I get it. That's the way they emphasize things in Hebrew. So Paul is just translating that over. Um, so we talked about verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. Verse 11 shatters the sort of one fuzzy everything's true, all religions are just equally true, or we're all searching for the same thing after all kind of stuff. No, none of them are true. There's nobody that seeks for God. That's what he's saying. It's all, it's all illusion. People are making up their own religious systems. We talked about that in chapter 1. Paul went all through that. Religion is not seeking God. It's nice to think it is, but it isn't. Religion is simply another way to suppress the truth. Religion is designed as an escape from God, not a way to God, not a search for Him. And the truth is no one, apart from the grace of God, seeks Him. There are people that seek, but if you seek, you're being drawn by Him. Because you can't seek on your own. You won't. You just won't. It's bound up in your nature not to. We're not inclined to seek Him because we actually delight in wickedness. And somewhere deep inside, everybody knows that God opposes wickedness. And there's something about him that's so off-putting and so distasteful to our natural selves that we don't want to have anything to do with him. So we make up gods. We invent them. And that's just a way to shut out the real God. Religion is the creation of a, a manageable deity 
that we can decide, we can choose in sort of a cafeteria style what attributes we want to have him have and which ones we don't want to have him have and we sort of make him up as we go and he's certainly this way and that way. He's not as he revealed himself, we're not interested in him as he revealed himself. We want to create him so men don't want to think about the real God. That's what Paul's been saying all along. Well verse 12 he says, all have turned aside. Jesus talked about the narrow way and the broad way. Well the narrow way people have turned aside. Everyone has turned aside from it. Forsaken the right way. Everyone's done that. I've done that. I, I grew up that way on the wrong path. Together they've become useless. Useless is a great Greek word. It, it's, it means useless. It's, they, if, if you spoiled the milk, they would say, ah, you've got useless milk there. I mean, it's something that you can't use. And it says human beings are in a useless condition to God. Humanity no longer serves the purpose for which God created it. We aren't really interested in it either. And I know you say, go this way. Okay, we'll do it as we can. It's kind of a side thing. There is none who does good. Not that people don't do good, because a lot of people do good on a human level. But we're talking theologically before God and the justice of God and the moral standards of God. Even our own moral standards, which are God-given in our conscience, we violate that all the time. Not, we're not good to him. None. Not even one. Not even close. None. None righteous. None. I'm just talking in a Hebrew style. The second area Paul deals with is speech. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You could do a whole thing on this, but the open grave, what an image. An open grave. Your mouth it's like an open grave. He says it's, it's, there's foul stuff coming out of there. It's gross. Close the door on the tomb there. That's sort of the idea. It's wafting out. This rottenness and decay is spreading out. And You know, Jesus said, you know how humans are. We always say, I didn't mean to say that. I don't know what came over me. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks yeah, of course we meant to say that. That's really what's it. We're ashamed that we wanted to say that. We're ashamed that that came out. So we try to cover it up by saying we didn't mean it or that wasn't really me or whatever. Who was it? You know, I don't know. But um, rottenness just comes out of the mouth. And Jesus says that comes because of our heart. And all that meanness and, and hurtful speech, which I used to be a real master at, which we say we didn't mean comes right, what do you mean I'm still a master? Comes right from the human heart. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. I'm just kidding. It's a most corrupt and wicked place, the heart, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. Then Paul goes on. He says, tongues that deceive, poisonous lips. Poison under the lips. That's a really great expression there. Concealed. Smiles to your face. Poison behind your back, right? Verse 14. Mouths full of cursing, and bitterness. We make such light in our culture now of cursing and bitterness, uh, speech like that. We even pay people to do it on television. But, but when you think about cursing and swearing and, and bitter recriminations and hostility and uh, all of it represents an almost completely anti-God state of mind, if you think about it. I mean, what are you saying when you're cursing and swearing or, or bitter words are pouring out of you. It's all the very opposite of the three cardinal Christian virtues, is it not? What are the three cardinal virtues? Faith, hope, and love. And cursing and bitterness have nothing to do with faith, hope, and love in any way, shape, or form. It's the exact opposite. 
Exactly. And yet, it's so common. It's so much a part of us. Cursing and bitterness are, are ways of trash-talking God, you know. If God was on the opposite side of the scrimmage line and you're trash-talking him. That's what it is. Accusing him, verbally trying to pull him down and smack him around and pull him off his throne. It is incredible arrogance in, in the speech of men. Then the third area is conduct, what people do. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace, the, the path of peace, I knew I could say that, they have not known. There's nothing unfamiliar there. Human history is written in blood, and it will be. It will be. That's not going to stop. Genesis 6.11 tells us that in Noah's day, the earth was filled with violence. And Jesus said, when he comes back, the earth is going to be as it was in Noah's day. Violent years lay before mankind, just as they existed behind us for century after century after century. The 20th century was by far the bloodiest century in human history. I mean, by far. And we call it progress. But the 21st century isn't going to be a whole lot better. It just won't be. It's human nature. I, I mean, I'd like it to be, but it, it just won't be. I'm just telling you. Paul uses a summary text in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Men don't fear God. They don't reverence Him. They don't really care what He thinks. They really don't. It's like, whatever religious stuff they do, they don't really care. They don't have a passion to know, what does God think I should do in this situation? It's just, it's just not, it's not it. So the character of man is wicked. His mouth speaks wickedness. His deeds are wicked. He is under sin. And he doesn't really care whether God approves or not. And he will live in his rebellion as long as he can, and then he will take what comes. That's the attitude. And sadly, Jesus says that what is coming is weeping and gnashing of teeth, unless there is some way to go from being unrighteous to being righteous. And there is. Now remember that the Jew was counting on, on the law to save him. We talked about that the last few weeks. But Paul has already shown him that he is a transgressor of the law. You can't count on the law to save you if you're a breaker of the law. It's like if you're going to go before a court and you've got 87 traffic tickets and you go in there and you say, but I know that speeding is wrong, Your Honor, and I've always believed that. He says, well, you've been clocked it 126 57 times and, and 130 30 more times. and Well, well I know. But I know what the law is, and I'm just relying on you to, for some reason, to let me go. I don't know why people even think that way, but they do. They possess the law, so they've kept it. That's what people think. I've got, I know what the right rules are, so I've kept them. Well, Paul has a different point of view on the law thing. Verse 19. Here's what the law does. This is what the law is good for. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Okay, it's talking to people under the law. Those are people that know God's law, that have heard it. The righteousness of God has been manifested. No, oh, where am I? I skipped down. Sorry. That, okay. Back, back up there in verse 19. It speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable. You can even translate that word guilty before God. Guilty to God. Accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, verse 20, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law is for. The law closes people's mouths. 
the law silences people. Before God on that great day, men will be measured by law and they will be exposed and they will shut up. And whatever defense they were planning to say on that day will just go right out of their minds. They'll be faced with an infinitely holy God who's really angry and all the planned defiance that they were going to, the case they were going to argue is just gone. They'll be struck dumb and they'll be completely guilty. They'll be completely aware of their guilt. I mean, completely fully aware of thousands and thousands of corrupt, wicked things that have gone through their hearts and souls and deeds, the secret deeds that nobody knows about, and all of it's going to be laid right before them, and they're going to be totally silent. So the law reveals sin. And even in this life, the only good thing the law does, well, it gives you a standard to shoot for, but beyond that, theologically speaking, it shows you what you haven't done. And that's what's so good about it. It shows you that you've come short. Because if you don't know that you've come short, you don't know what your need is. So that's its advantage. People counting on having a moral law will be sorely disappointed because they've broken it. But knowing that you've broken it is good if you're looking for the solution. So, there's this absolute certainty. There's a theological principle that is literally carved in stone. So you can underline it, verse 20, key sentence in the whole book, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So if you're planning on going to God and arguing how good you are, you're making a terrible mistake. The word justified, it's the same word really in its root as the word righteous. It's, it's that idea of how God's going to look at you. And the word justified means to be pronounced righteous, like a judge. You are justified in what you've done. You're righteous. That's what he'd be saying. Vindicated. So to be pronounced righteous is to be justified. That's the same thing. And righteousness is the basis of our entrance, of any human being's entrance into the, into the kingdom of God. You can't get in without righteousness. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never get in. If you're not better than the most holy guy you know, you'll never get in. And he said that to break people, to break them on their self-confidence, to break them of their pride, to break them of their foolish self-deception that, yeah, I'm a good guy, I'm going to make it. Only the righteous are acceptable to God. But what have we learned? There is none righteous, no, not one. So we're back to that same problem. What do we do? We ask the question, can a sinful man ever be justified by God? Can wicked people become righteous? Well, I'm glad you asked that because that question leads us to one of the most wonderful paragraphs in the whole Bible. And this literally is one of the most wonderful paragraphs in the whole Bible. The only problem with the most wonderful paragraph in the Bible is that Paul wrote it and he is very wordy. So, we're, But that's good. I mean, God wanted him to be wordy because there's so many truths in it and you have to kind of peel off each layer of truth from this really long sentence he's going to give us, which is this great stuff, but you've got to be real patient and, and focus, okay? Because this is the gospel. So follow real carefully. He's about to tell us something wonderful about righteousness. Righteousness is an ugly word to people that are in sin. If you've ever read Martin Luther's testimony, he talks about how he hated God as a monk living, you know, and teaching theology and being a monk and he hated God because when he read Romans, he, he always thought of righteousness as the standard that he broke and that God hated him because he broke the standard. But it was when he started to read Romans more carefully that he came to the realization it's not talking about our lack of righteousness, 
it's the righteousness of God that's being revealed. And there's wonderful news about that. And he says he was born again when he learned that news. So here it is. What's wonderful for sinners is the opening phrase of verse 21. But now, the next words are great. Good words. Apart from law. Apart from law. We're talking about something that is not based on law. That's good news because all the law did was show us what wretches we are. So I would like something apart from law. Here it is. Apart from law, the righteousness of God is manifested. There is righteousness here on display. And whose righteousness is it? It's God's righteousness. That's really important to understand. The critical phrase appears in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now you're beginning to get the great dichotomy of Romans and all New Testament theology, which is law versus faith as a means to attain righteousness. You can be righteous if you can keep the law, and good luck if you can do it. But there's another kind of righteousness, which is God's righteousness, which is apprehended and received by faith. That was the great discovery that Luther made. Faith takes us right back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, doesn't it? The righteous man shall live by faith. That's the theme of the book. Paul is presenting a contrasting source of righteousness. There's law, and you're righteous if you keep it, but once that's broken, you're doomed. But there's also a righteousness by faith, he says, for all who believe. There's no limits to it. There's a righteousness for those who believe that has nothing to do with keeping the law. It is apart from law. It is separate. It is distinct. It's outside of us. And it's available to all because everyone's in the same situation. Under sin, condemned without excuse. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the famous verse 23. Now don't get lost. Verse 24 follows right from that phrase in verse 22. It says, for all who believe. We know everybody's sinned. We all agree with that? Anybody here not a sinner? Okay, good. Okay, you're all with me on that. Verse 24 follows from that phrase in verse 22. Look at verse 22 and see where it says, for all who believe. Okay, the other part is just adding on information. Now skip right down to verse 24 because he's continuing from there. For all who believe, being justified. What's that mean? Being declared righteous, vindicated, justified before God. Being justified as a gift by his grace. So it flows like this. For all who believe, being justified. That means being made right with God, being justified as a gift. Justification, being righteous before God's justice is a gift. Why does he give it? How does he give it? By his grace. Grace is that quality in God whereby he is kind to people that don't deserve it. It's unmerited favor. God is full of love and grace. He gives to those who are undeserving. That's good news for me. Here's the problem. How can God be just and then hand out salvation to sinners as though sin is no big deal? 
How can he do that? Is sin a big deal or is it not a big deal? Make up your mind. How can this be true? And I'm sure this is what the Jew would say to Paul. You've rightly condemned lawbreakers. You made a big deal out of sin. They're con- condemned. The throats in open grave. They got poison, all these destructive things. God is anti-sin. He's pouring out all his wrath. You've already said that. Well, how can he do that on one side and then on the other side just be dispensing salvation for nothing? It's either serious or it isn't serious. Well, we're not done. There's more. He's now describing the basis of God's action. Why a good and just God can give away salvation. Verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through, here's the process, the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now in verse 22 we mentioned faith in Christ Jesus. Now he speaks of redemption. Redemption is a great word. It had a very specific meaning in the ancient world. It refers to purchasing something's or someone's freedom. Purchasing freedom. If I can use a really crude modern analogy, if you go down to the pawn shop and you got to pawn your golf clubs, you take them down there and you give them your golf clubs, they give you 10 bucks or whatever, even though you've paid $500 for them, and then you get a redemption ticket. And if you come up with the money, you can come back and redeem your golf clubs, right? Redemption. It's exactly the same idea. You pay to bring your bondage clubs out of hock. In the ancient world, that word was most often used about slaves. A person that was put into slavery. You could buy their freedom by paying a price. Redemption. Now, think about this. Text. That's exactly the idea in the New Testament. Speaking of Jesus, verse 25, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So now we're getting to blood. This is really an important idea. The redemption is in Christ. Whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation. Now your Bible might not say propitiation because a lot of new translations throw that word out. Shame on them. It's a good word. It's a big word, but it's a good word. It's an important word. The word blood, you know, verse 25, right? You know what blood is. That represents Jesus' life poured out. He paid the price of his life. That's the price of redemption. Propitiation, and it's watered down if you use any other word, it literally means to turn away wrath. Wrath is abiding on you because of sin. A propitiatory act turns away wrath. It's like if somebody was really mad at you and they were, well, think of Jacob and Esau. You remember when Esau was coming at Jacob and Jacob wanted to try, you know, Esau's like wanted to kill him for 20 years or beat him up or pull his ears off or hit him on the head or something. And he, and he starts sending presents to Esau before, remember that? Ah, here's a here's, here's hundred goats. There's a hundred sheep. And every time Esau's riding with his men, it's, it's almost like a movie. You know, there's got these, like this whole crowd of Arab guys riding down, you know, and here's Jacob with his little family, his 12 little kids and his wife, you know, and their little goats and stuff. And these guys keep riding down on him. Well, he sends out these little presents. Not little presents, big presents. Here's a hundred camels. Here's 400 goats. Here's 35 sheep or whatever, you know. And every time Esau comes across this new thing, he goes, what's this? Oh, it's a present from, from, 
Jacob, you know, your brother. Oh, oh, okay. Then there's a little less furious when he's writing on. Then another present, he's a little less furious. And by the time he gets to the end, he's pretty happy. Hey, Jacob, buddy. You know, he's, all for, he's appeased his wrath. That's the idea. He's, he's done something to turn away the wrath of, of, of uh, Esau, his brother. So that's exactly what Christ does. He's turning away the wrath of God. There's the Greek word hilasterion. It means to turn away wrath. Critical term. If you have a Bible that doesn't have that word in it, write a letter and say, you need to put that word back you know, some big words you just have to learn, you know. I understand the whole dumbing down thing, but some big words, they have meaning. You just have to put them in there. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath of God has targeted sinners. And that's everybody. But Christ propitiated God's wrath. He turned it away. So it no longer targets those who have faith in Jesus because He paid the price, He says, in His blood. And He adds once again in verse 25, through faith we receive the benefits of Christ's death through faith. Now, are you all with me so far? He's just about to tie it all together, so I hope you're with me. He's going to tie it all together now. He's going to answer that question of God's justice. We're right in the middle of verse 25. He says this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. This is to demonstrate God's righteousness. Why does God need to do that? Because, now watch this, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. You say, what does that mean? It means he didn't do that much about it. I mean, every now and then he'd blast somebody or kick over a couple thousand people or whatever in, in the Old Testament, but... I mean, let's face it, most people go on and sin all their lives. Generations go by, cultures go by, nations go by and do horrible things to other people all the time. And, you know, there's normal consequences in this world, but there's not like divine retribution coming out all the time. People get away with murder, literally, all the time. God had kind of let sins go with a, without a direct and obvious in this life punishment for many generations he was often silent seemingly inactive so much so that people thought that either he was soft on sin or lightly regarded it or maybe he just wasn't there like Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 say the fool says in his heart there is no God he might say in his mouth there is one but in his heart he thinks that maybe there isn't one and God was patient and of course let's face it if God blasted everybody for their sin nobody would be here right so um, nobody would be left standing. But so we don't make the mistake that forbearance is softness or that forbearance is a lack of concern. Now Paul says he publicly, openly is demonstrating his righteousness. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Jesus was publicly put forth as a demonstration of the righteousness and the justice of God. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter 12 when he said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The cross just rivets our attention on this great act. Even people that don't believe are drawn to the image and the idea and, and ask about it. Why is that man dying? Well, he's dying to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Look at the cross and you see the heart of God revealed. And that's how he regards sin. Look at the cross in your mind. That's what sin deserves. 
Now in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, you get the clincher line, the key. For the demonstration, I say, Paul says, of his righteousness at the present time, it's Paul's day when Jesus came. Now watch, get the next phrase and you're home free. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Really important idea. God is just. People are counting on his being unjust, but he's just. And his justice is perfect and infinite and impartial. But God loves wicked people. God loves sinners. So let's go all the way back and we'll ask God the question, how can a wicked man be right with you? Is there a way? Yes. How? By faith in Jesus. It's exactly at this point that people object. That's not fair. How can a just God let horrible sinners off the hook? Don't they need to roast for a while for a couple thousand years or something? No. Because at the cross, the justice of God is fully satisfied in the death of Jesus as God vents his just wrath. And the mercy of God is fully revealed as God bears the wrath for us. He is just and he's the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. He is right and he makes right the one who believes in Jesus. That is righteousness apart from law. It's the only hope for sinners. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, and I've told it eight million times, but in case you're here for the first time, you've never heard me say this story. So, if you've heard it before, just pretend like you haven't. But it's such a perfect illustration. And I don't even know if the story is true, and it doesn't matter. It's just a great story. But it, it tells you the whole idea. There was in, in China, in ancient times, this great warlord. And then a warlord isn't a guy that goes around beating people up. He was like a king, a potentate, a, a ruler of a province. And there was a, he was known as the most incredibly just man of his age. He, he was wonderful in his sense of justice. And people knew if they brought a problem to him, he would be totally impartial, meeting out justice with complete fairness, laboring to be just. He was concerned about his reputation for justice, not for himself, but because he was passionate for justice. He believed in right and wrong so much, and he had this, it was just who he was. He was a great man of his time. And there was a famine in the land. And in order to solve the problem of the famine, he decided that it was just like in the Old Testament with Joseph, he decided all the food needed to be brought into the central location in the palace and guarded and carefully meted out to everyone fairly during the time of famine so nobody would suffer loss. Everyone would make it. That was his goal. But things were so tight that he had to pass some really rigid restrictions. So he made a law. He said, if anybody's caught stealing food, they would be caned with a, with, a, with a hundred strokes with these big heavy canes that they had, which would kill you. It would break your bones to pieces and kill you. And he says, so that would you'd be, have a hundred strokes of the cane, which everybody knew meant death. So that was the law. Well, one night, he's asleep in his palace and everything's going okay, doing all that. Well, he gets a knock on the door from the guards and they say, sir, we caught somebody stealing. And he said, well, bring them before me in the morning and we'll deal with it. So that morning he puts on his robes, his official judgment seat robes. He climbs up the steps to his seat. He sits on his judgment seat. And the guards come dragging this person in the dust, tiny person, just shaking, swept around, clothes ratted. Throw her before him. It's a woman. 
She's in the dust, her face is down, she can't even look up, and finally a tear streaming down her face, she looks up, and it's his mother. And he loves his mother so much. What is a just man to do? He's made the law. If he says, well, mom, you can go free, he's not just anymore. But if he kills her, it's his mother. So what is he going to do? He says, carry out the punishment. So the guys come with the big sticks and he says, wait a second. Stands up, casts off his royal judge's robes, walks down the steps, wraps himself around her body and says, carry on. And they beat him and kill him. Love and justice are joined in one act, you see. That's what God has done for you. Now, is that good news or bad news? That's good news. As unworthy as we are, we don't even have a mother standing with God. And here's the point about being just and the justifier. Who would dare say that that man was soft on sin? Who would dare say, well, you let her go? That's not justice. Who would dare say that when he took it upon himself, the full weight of the penalty? That's exactly what Jesus did. So God can make wicked men right with him because he publicly, for all to see, bore his own wrath in himself, took all the strokes, Does anyone doubt God's love? Do you doubt whether God loves you? Look to the cross in your mind's eye, the agony of Jesus. That's what you deserved, but he bore it for you, gladly, out of love. Never doubt his love. Your emotions may waver in appreciating it, but never doubt the love of God. There's one phrase in verse 21 I deliberately skipped over. Back up in verse 21, it says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All of this, what, what God did was foretold in advance, long before it happened in many, many ways by types and pictures. We talked a couple weeks ago about Abraham and Isaac and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the Passover and all of that. Sacrifices, pictures of substitution, the need for death, the need for blood, the horror of sin, the scapegoat, all those things. But what better promise can you have than Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before Jesus ever walked this earth? And I'm just going to read this and we'll be done. Isaiah 53.3 He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. But surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Let's pray. Lord, words can't express our gratitude for the life and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Where at the cross, love and justice are perfectly met. And the circle of truth becomes complete. And all your attributes cohere in one great place. And we don't have to pretend anything about ourselves or about you because it all fits together. And we thank you for that. And Lord, whatever our mood might be, we pray that you would give us a confidence and an assurance of your love that would be so unshakable because it's anchored in such an incredible act by our Lord Jesus that nothing would diminish it in our hearts and in our minds. We thank you in his name we pray. Amen.